Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor who wrote a book called uh, Night, wherein he rehearses his uh, experiences in a concentration camp during World War II. And he calls the book Night because, of course, the experiences were awful, awful of the highest order. And at one point, he tells of having to walk by people who had been hung because they were trying to work against the Nazi party. And they had to walk right by these people, right up close, so as to try to intimidate them from doing the same thing. And Wiesel says that as they walked by those men that were hung, one of them was a boy. As they walked by them, he heard a man behind him say, for God's sake, where is God? And Wiesel says, and from within me, I heard an answer. And Wiesel said, where is he? This is where. Hanging from the gallows. The presence of such gross evil moved Wiesel to conclude that God was dead. You may have noticed that when Henry read that passage in Psalm 10.1, that verse 1 sounds an awful lot like that, doesn't it? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So what's the answer? Where is God when the darkness of evil is so thick that you can't even see to, seem to see the hand in front of your face? And just as important, maybe even more important, how do things even get there? How do we even get to a place where that's happened? How could anyone get to a place where they thought that concentration camps or even minor evils were okay? How does that come about? How does that happen? What, in other words, is the anatomy of evil? Well, those are the questions, friends, that we will endeavor to answer this morning. And suffice it to say, I will not and cannot answer every question, but I do think that we have some answers here that will give us confidence to follow the Lord as king amidst the times of trouble. And what we're going to find, friends, is that Wiesel was surprisingly more right than he probably knew. Big idea, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. That's the big idea. If you get lost, we're trying to come up under that verse. That's a big idea. The Lord is king forever and ever. And yet, while that is true, the psalm begs the question once again, how does evil or bad or wickedness or unrighteous or wrong things, how do those things come about? Again, what is the anatomy of evil. That's where we'll spend most of our time, and then we'll have a few responses for we Christians in light of that towards the end. But after asking the question about where the Lord is amidst such wickedness, the psalmist moves to explain how evil people arrive at their evil deeds. And what we find is that the answer to how people become evil, the answer to how people become wicked, the answer to how people just do bad things or wrong things, uh, the text even goes on to say how people do mischievous or cursing or deceitful or murdering or sinful things. The way that one arrives at such a lifestyle, according to Psalm 10, is three steps. One, you deny God. Two, you deny God because you believe your actions will never be held accounted for. And so therefore, three, you then pridefully do whatever you want. That's the sort of track that will follow. The psalmist's answer is similar to Dostoevsky's in many ways. When Remember, Dostoevsky made that great observation that if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. 
Only the psalmist is more nuanced, more insightful. But either way, they arrive at the same place. The answer to what happens to someone that concludes God is not real or powerful is that desire becomes king. You can see that right there in verse 3, which we'll come back to. But before we get there, let me show you the functional atheism of the evildoer, how it comes about. So first off, that denial of God. Look at verse 3. We see that they first renounce the Lord. You can see that there. Remember, this is keeping in mind, every time you see that word Lord, it's referencing a specific God. This is not just some general God. Lord is the covenant name of God revealed to us in the word and in particular in the person, the work of Christ. But anyway, they renounce this specific, the Lord, uh, Lord's specific God. In verse 4, it says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek the Lord. All his thoughts, all the wicked's thoughts are, quote, there is no God. Verse 5, God's judgments are on high, out of his sight. In other words, the person thinks that God doesn't see anything. As for all his, thoughts, the wicked, as for all the wicked's foes, he puffs at them. These would be God's friends. So God's friends, the wicked, looks at them and thinks him better than them. So you can see this denial of the Lord. And I'm calling it functional atheism because the likelihood that this person or persons would have openly and consciously denied the existence of God, the the likelihood of that is slim. In fact, if you slide down to verse 11, you can see there it's that the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. So there's a, at some level, right, they still might say that they believe in God. But functionally, they act as though there is no God. And so that's the first step towards any kind of wrongdoing. You functionally act as though there is no God, even if you claim that there is one. That's the first step from everything as small as a lie about a piece of candy that you took to something as great as Auschwitz. But you might be asking the question, okay, why is that important? What does that have to do, the denial of God? Why would that be important in terms of the anatomy of evil? Well, the answer is because if there is no God, then there is no accountable, no accountability for our actions. No God, no justice, as it were. This is where Dostoevsky's comment is so spot on. If God does not exist, then everything is permissible. There's no God, there's no morality. Things just are. Auschwitz wasn't a bad thing. It just happened. It just was. Right? Evil is not evil. It just is. Wrong is not wrong. It just is. The man that maybe rapes a woman, uh, abuses a child, the CEO that deceives the shareholders, uh, or the husband that speaks harshly with his wife, the, the Gestapo that orders countless murders, or even down to, as this passage is driving us to, the, to the small even, and mischievous, stealing five bucks, treating people, one group of people as though you're better than them. Or just using people or never or rarely serving them. And if God doesn't exist or if he does exist but he holds no one accountable, therefore all of that kind of morality, none of it matters. Because none of it will be dealt with in any way. It just happens. So where there is no justice from a just God, that is where there is no accountability, then morality is nothing more than a nice suggestion. And mankind is then free to live as he pleases. All of us have experienced this probably at some level. We remember when we were children, right? And maybe uh, maybe the time mom and dad went away from home and we had the whole house to ourselves. And we knew they weren't coming back for two or three hours. And what did we do? A bunch of stuff that we wouldn't normally do, right? 
And in the same way, we might be tempted to do something, but if I knew mom and dad were in the other room right next door, I wouldn't do it. So this is on a larger scale. So when we alternatively, on the other side of things, when we live, though, with a mindfulness of the Lord as king, understanding that we are not an end to ourselves, but we must answer, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, that we must answer, we will have to answer, quote, for every careless word. That's at the most bottom. I think Jesus there is going all the way down to the finite level, much less the big thing. So there's, there's something about knowing that the Lord is king and that we will answer to him, that has a way of kind of curbing evil and straightening us out in the same way knowing a parent is in the other room will orient our behavior as children. But if we functionally deny God by thinking that we don't have to answer for our thoughts and our actions, that then gives permission to then take advantage of others for the sake of ourselves. That's kind of the scene that's running right through this psalm. The wicked renounces the Lord, therefore, verse 5, since his thoughts are there is no God, he thinks God's judgments are on high out of his sight, verse 5. Verse 6, notice what I'm doing here, guys, is just tracking right through this thought about how because they denied God, they don't have any accountability. Look at that, verse 5, there is no God, he thinks God's judgments are on high, they're out of his sight. In other words, he thinks God doesn't see any of this that he's doing. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. In other words, he thinks, I can just do this. I'm not going to have anybody push back on me. Which then leads to verses 7 to 10. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression, mischief, and iniquity, and sin. He sits and ambushes in villages. He murders the innocent. He He watches for the helpless, which is to say he prays upon the weak. He seizes the poor. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 14, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So how does wrong or evil or wickedness or unrighteousness begin from the small to the great? A functional denial of God. Why is that important? Because second, the person will be led to believe that they will never have to give an account for any of their actions. They can just do whatever they want, which is the third step. Friends, it's impossible to live without some kind of a law, even if you're a law to yourself. Everybody lives as some kind of law with some kind of morality of some sort, which is one of the uh, other reasons for the existence of God. The most ardent of atheists uh, to uh, the most strongly held believers and theistic ones, we all understand that there's good and bad. Everybody. Everybody knows and believes there's something that's good and there's something that's bad, something that's right, that's something that's wrong. And so what then does the, what law that is, does the person that commits the wrong or the evil acts, what law do they live by since they've concluded that God doesn't see their actions? What law are they going to live by? Well, the answer is right there in verse 3. They live for the desire of their own soul. As it says there, they are greedy for their own gain. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. In the pride of his face, the wicked doesn't seek God, that is. And so the third step towards answering the question of how bad or wrong or evil or unrighteousness or wickedness, the third step at first, again, denying God, believing there is nothing to give account for. Therefore, they thirdly pridefully do whatever it is they desire. In other words, whatever you feel becomes God. 
Personal desire becomes God. No longer guided by the transcendent laws of a transcendent God of whom they will have to give account. They become their own God, living for whatever will give them the most pleasure. Other people and other things become food for them to feast upon, uh, and they fight anyone that would try to tell them otherwise. So they prey upon the weak, as the psalmist describes here. They care little to nothing about how that affects the people of whom they involve themselves with. They're greedy, it says, for personal gain. Their guide is their own desires. Their guide is not God's desires, even if they say it is. Which, by the way, this would explain how people who would take the name of God and like do things like uh, the Crusades. Clearly, they're going about their own desires and by their actions are showing that they are not submitting to God as king. And if they can find, like these other guys, can find a, a, a tribe or a group of people that will go along with their own desires, all the better. That just is more crowdsourcing to get their own way. This is the anatomy of evil from the small to the great. All of this, I think, can be summed up really well in the, uh, by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 when he's describing what went wrong with the world. In Romans chapter 1, Paul starts off with the broad and he kind of narrows in as the, as the story goes on and he has the same conclusions as the psalmist does here in Psalm 10. Paul writes, as you can see behind me, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. How is it plain? Because God has shown it to them. How so? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How so? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have now been, that have been made. In other words, what Paul is saying is that humanity understands that there is this rubric of morality and they suppress it. They push it back. Even though God has clearly revealed himself to him in creation, they've seen in particular that he's divine, that they're not him, that none of us can create a world like he can, and that he's powerful, that he can do it. So Paul goes on to say, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, claiming to be wise, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they they traded the transcendent God for worthless idols of the earth. So how does God respond to this? How does God respond to people functionally denying him, thinking they can sort of do whatever they please? Well, Paul goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, therefore, as a result of people doing this in the world, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. In other words, God's what we call this God's passive wrath. He just lets them have instead of his sustaining wrath where he comes in and does something. And also he doesn't stop. He doesn't give that common grace. He just lets them go. Just do what you please. That's God's judgment. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? We ask. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed 
forever. Amen. So this, friends, explains why the world is the way it is. It explains why there is any number of false religions. It explains how Auschwitz happens. It it explains why not only our country, but any country is the way it is. It explains why there's marital strife. It explains why there's racism. It explains why there's sexual immorality of all kinds. It explains why there's relational divides between mother and daughter and father and son, boss and employee, friend to friend. We have answers there that can explain so much of these. Not necessarily in their detail, but we can give the broad understanding of how that happened. People functionally deny God because they think they never have to give account to him, and so therefore they pridefully do what they please. Using people for their own immoral or greedy gains, living for their own desires. Again, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, serving the creature, serving this world, and just rejecting the transcendent God. This is the anatomy of evil. Thaddeus Williams writes in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. He says, we assume that the best way to make sense of the universe is by trying to make sense of the other stuff in the box of the world, he says. In other words, we try to understand the world by just looking at the world. He goes on to say, he says, Charles Darwin and Richard Dawkins would have us make sense of all of life in terms of biology. Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson would reduce reality to physics. Sigmund Freud and Steven Pinker would point to psychology. Karl Marx and Friedrich Hayek to economics. Herbert Marcuse and Hugh Hefner to sex. Steve Jobs and Elon Musk to technology. Disney and TMZ to entertainment. In other words, there are all these ways serving the creature, trying to explain the world by those things. None of these explanations, though, work because none of them acknowledge the existence and accountability to the living God that exists outside of the box, that made and sustained the box, as it were. Meaning their vision, the world's vision of the good life and justice for the bad is only able to be explained and therefore fixed only by the things of this world. And so the vicious cycle goes on and on and on because there's no appeal to a God that stands outside of it. And so no matter how many philosophical or economic or sexual or technological or ideological so-called liberations, no matter how many of those we are offered, we discover, as it says, look down there in Psalm 10.6, as it says there, throughout all generations, no matter what continent or when it is, all generations, wrong or bad or evil or wickedness, it never seems to diminish. In fact, we might even argue that it gets worse. Because humanity thinks that they can live however they please with no real accountability to God. And so, friends, unless theology is meaningfully engaged, we will never make progress in sociology. Theology must be meaningfully engaged. We must meaningfully engage the God that made the world, sustains the world. We must come to some kind of conclusions. Is he the God of Christianity or the God of Islam? They can't both be true. We've got to meaningfully engage those questions if we're going to try to understand and see resolution and see peace, to see beauty here in the world. And so don't forget that, guys. Kids, I'm speaking especially to you as you start school. Don't forget that. Don't forget that what you read, what you hear, these kinds of things from all the different sources, I don't care what those sources are, whatever source it is, it is that you read or uh, spend time with, whatever those sources are, None of them 
in this world, oftentimes outside of, I would argue, those that are theologically bent, those of us that are in Christ in particular, that are trying to set the world and come up under the authority of God by coming up under the authority of his word. If none of them are doing this level of explanation, if none of them are meaningfully engaging theology, as it were, as an explanation for what is wrong in the world or what's wrong with us, they will stay in the box of the world, never moving deeper and higher up to God who made and sustains the world. They are always going to explain the wrongs on the horizontal level of humanity and think that they can then fix the horizontal level of humanity with humanity. And so because they aren't meaningfully engaged with the God that made us and sustained us, no accountability to him, their explanations and their solutions will always either be incomplete or entirely inaccurate. And yet the reality is, friends, God has, as we've read, God has plainly revealed his power and divinity to us in creation. He's also plainly revealed himself to us in the person, the work of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And it is only until we begin to acknowledge his lordship, his kingship, verse 16, that we can really begin to understand the human condition. Only until we begin to fear the Lord will it be that we will ever see any kind of sustained peace and beauty. And vice versa. As long as we keep authorizing humanity to do whatever he or she pleases, whatever they desire, and think God just approves of it all with no account, and we will continue to spiral out of control. Terror, to quote that verse in verse 18, terror will continue to be striking the earth. But go ahead and look down at that verse 18. The reality is, no matter what humanity might think or do, as we will see in a moment, God is not absent. We will give an account, and man who is of the earth may strike terror no more when God intervenes. So in other words, the sooner that we all understand that we are but dust, that we are finite, that we are here today, gone tomorrow, we're like a vapor. The sooner we understand that we will have to answer to God, the sooner terror will be stricken from our communities and our homes. And so friends, I don't don't care what position you have. I don't care what degrees uh, you have, what authority you might have. You and I, we're just men. We're just men. You have to sleep. I think about that every day. No matter how strong and powerful I might think I am, I have to sleep. God never sleeps or slumbers. We are weak. We are just men. If we are mindful even of the verse, y'all go back to last week. Look at the verse that led into Psalm 10. It's asking for the same thing. Look at Psalm 920. This is leading us right into Psalm 10. The psalmist asks, put Them in fear, O Lord. He's referencing his enemies. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations, not just Israel, not just his region, let the nations know they are but men. We've got to come to an understanding, as it teaches us in Hebrews 9.27, that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Guys, that's a promise. And Christians, that's a promise for us too, by the way. You want more evidence of this Bible? By the way, Bible's talking about this all the time. So if maybe you descended in here and said, well, I went into a church and I got some revivalistic preaching. This is all through the Bible, this idea. 
And you'll notice what I'm doing is I'm just walking right through the passage, just telling you what it says. I'm mindful. As Jesus taught in Luke 16 of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man and the poor man. And Jesus tells a story of this rich man that sort of does whatever he wants. He has all the things that he needs. And he walks out and sees the poor man and that Lazarus, he doesn't do anything with him. And the rich man does everything that he wants. And then the rich man dies and he sees how awful hell is. Jesus, this is Jesus' story. Go back and read it this afternoon, Luke 16. He goes back and Jesus says that the rich man, things are so awful, he just wants a drop of water. He doesn't get it. And then the rich man pleads and says, listen, let me just go warn my family about this coming judgment. And he's not allowed to go warn his family. And and Jesus says in the story in Luke 16, he says, this is a bit of a paraphrase. He talks about Moses and the prophets. But Jesus says, they are not going to listen to the Bible. They're not going to listen to a man that resurrects from the dead. Jesus stands under the word to say, if they don't listen to scripture, then they won't even listen to a man that rises from the dead. Friend, if this might describe you, if you're living an unrepentant sin in some capacity, you'd be wise to consider your actions now while you can. Unlike that rich man, he found out when it was too late. If you have done something that you should not have done, you left something undone that you should have done, or you're planning to do something that you should not do, and you've never repented of that, never walked in repentance day after day, giving it to Jesus, asking him to forgive me, then friend, let me love you by warning you of the coming judgment of God. You will have to give an account for that action. Look down there in verse 14, friend. The Lord does see and he does note every tiny mischief and vexation and he will take it into his hands. And so friend, my pleading to you is, my pleading to you is, Turn from that sin now while you can. Plead forgiveness. Turn around from that now while you can. The Lord, look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. You're not king. The kings of the earth, they will come and they will go. But the Lord is king and you will have to answer to him. This passage is screaming that out to you this morning. This is exactly what Marco came to conviction of and got out from under. And now this baptismal waters are symbolizing Jesus was judged for Marco. He's now clean. The judgment's taken away. Friend, that has to be you. Otherwise, you don't get the cleansing of the blood of Christ. You have to pay it. But either way, it gets paid. This is the hope of the gospel. The Lord is king. There's never been, nor will there ever be a time when you or me are ever really in charge of anything. We are all being held and accountable for all of our careless words, to our thoughts and our actions under that holy king. And so turn and find forgiveness in the very same God of whom you have offended. That's right. The one that you offended that deservedly offers you judgment for what you've done. That same God also offers you grace for forgiveness. It's amazing. This is why we Christians call it good news. 
Paul goes on to write just a few lines down in Romans 3, right after that Romans 1 passage I read earlier. He goes on to write in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, which is to say they're counted righteous. Right? Marco is in and of himself not righteous. Right? You spend five minutes with Marco, you'll find that. Right? He understands his righteousness, you heard him say, is in Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, counted righteous, by his, by God's grace, as a gift. As a gift. How? How do we get this gift? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Which is why Paul will go on to say in verse 26, God can be both just and the justifier of the one that believes. He can maintain his justice of holiness and still justify sinners because by us trusting in the person and the work of Christ to receive our judgment on the cross, therefore, since we trust that payment, we can be counted righteous because Christ was righteous. Counted to us. Jesus, friend, came for people just like you and me. He said that he came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. He says in Mark 1, Jesus does, therefore the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe that Jesus takes all of the judgment that you deserve. On the cross is buried and then defeats it all in the resurrection. The only way that you and I can escape the judgment is by trusting in Christ, who, as it says in Galatians 3, became a curse for us. So, friends, see, the the difference in the church of Christ from the world is not that we haven't committed evil deeds. But again, go spend 20 minutes with Marco. I'm assuming you'll see some sin at some level. I don't know. I have nothing in my mind to be clear about Marco. Spend it with me. Spend it with me. The difference between us, the difference between the church of Christ and the world is not that we don't commit evil deeds. What it is, the difference is, is we're repenting and believing on Christ. And he's changing us from the inside out. We have the legal standing when we trust in Christ and are born again. We're counted righteous. And then we are sanctified. We are increasingly growing up into our righteous standing forever. That's the difference between us and the world is we're repenting and believing on Christ. We understand as Christians, we will be held accountable for our actions after we die, when Christ returns. But Christ has freed us from the penalty by becoming a penalty for us in faith. And so when God, I stand before God and they say, Nathan, and God says, why should I let you into my kingdom? I will not appeal to my deeds. I will not appeal to my actions. I will say, I don't deserve to be here. That's my answer. Well, then why should I let you in? I appeal to him. Remember the righteous? Remember the, the, the thief on the cross? Y'all remember that story? When Jesus right, says, today you'll be with me in paradise because he trusts in Christ. That was his appeal. Jesus, that's it. That's my only appeal. And so, friend, turn from evil. Trust in Christ. Be born again. Escape that judgment that you deserve. And be born again to a new living hope. Grow up into that righteousness and be conformed into that hope. But what about those of us that have already done this? What about those of us that are still squarely inside of verse 1? Wondering, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What about those of us Christians that are living inside of it and all the darkness is around us? And we don't feel like God is anywhere to be found. 
So what we've done so far is we've explained how things got there, how things got evil, how things got bad. But what would the Lord want to say to those of us that are in Christ? Three things, briefly. One, this passage teaches us that the Lord would want to say three things. Here's the first, to pray. He would tell us he wants us to keep praying. Keep praying. Friends, prayerlessness is functional atheism. It's going down the road of the evildoer. Right? The way the psalmist is able to make it through this time is because while he wonders why the Lord is hidden, notice that he doesn't conclude it. And the way in which we see that he hasn't concluded that God isn't real is by his prayer. He keeps on praying to him through the pain. He goes to God in the pain. The presence of his prayers reveals that he is continuing to believe that, verse 14, that he will commit himself to God knowing that he helps the fatherless. Prayer, friends, is our lifeline to the throne room of God. To neglect prayer for this or any other reason is to cut yourself off from the resources Christ has purchased for you and to then commit to your own way of seeing you through the despair. And friend, that is a futile way to live. You don't have enough strength. I don't have enough strength to get through the pain. Prayer is the way that we tap into the throne room of God to sense that power, to be reminded of the truth. The psalmist keeps praying. We must keep praying. And notice that when he's praying, he's honest. Where are you? Where are you, God? I don't sense anything. It's dark in here. He brings that to God. He's honest with him. He doesn't try to play superficiality stuff with God. He takes it to him. And Christian, we're reminded, aren't we? We believe God ordained this book, right? God put Psalm 10, verse 1 in there for you. He wrote verse 1. God wrote verse 1. He put that word in there for you and for me. He knows there's going to be times when it's going to seem like he's absent. That's why he wrote this book. That's why he stuck it in there for you. Because he wants you to keep praying. Keep praying. Keep trusting me. And if you're wondering if we as Christians can pray prayers like this, in particular, if you're wondering if we can pray things like verse 15, break the arm of the evildoer, call his wickedness to account. If you're wondering, do, can Christians pray that stuff today? The answer is yes, you can. Two conditions, though, two important conditions. You can pray these sometimes called imprecatory prayers, judgment upon the evildoer that is hurting you. You can pray them under two conditions. One, you remember that you once were an enemy of God and God showed you mercy. God showed you grace. So therefore, you also ought to pray for your persecutors, pray for those that are hurting you and ask them to come to know God. Just as Saul did. Remember, Saul is killing, right, Stephen and he comes to faith. Pray that for others. In this way, you bless those who persecute you, Romans 12. The second condition is, is that your trust is not in yourself to see vindication. That's very important. Your trust is not in your hands. You can't appeal to the government, right, in some ways, insofar as it's criminal, right? That's Romans 13 makes that clear, that the government has been given the power of the sword to to administer justice on the earth. But nevertheless, it is not in the Christian to bring about justice on ourselves. So you have to understand that. You have to pray those things, but understand we are not the ones to bring about judgment. 
Romans 12, 18, beloved, never, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And so pray for justice, but do so knowing that God showed you mercy also and plead that the Lord would get vindication in his way and in his time for his glory. And as you do, second, remember. First, pray. Second, remember. Remember what God has done. Gosh, we got to remember this. Verse 14. Look at what he says. If he has been the helper of the fatherless, in other words, the psalmist is concluding, he knows, he's reminded, he has been the helper of the fatherless. He, he, he has helped people before. So we've got to remember what he's done. He will, if you remember what he has done, you will remember what he can and will do for you. Right? Remembering what God has done will fuel your hope for what God will do. Guys, this is so important. Faith is trusting God for future grace based upon the evidence of God's past grace. That's what faith is. We trust him for future grace that I can't see, especially in the darkness, because I look back and see how faithful he has been. And so remember what God has done, not only for you, beloved, but for the countless of other saints throughout the centuries. Remember how God led Joseph from a pit to being a prince. Remember how he got his people out of slavery by the blood of a lamb and led them through the wilderness and gave them food to eat and he got them home. Remember how he delivered David from both Saul and Absalom, preserving his reign, though it was dark for a while. Remember how God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery flames of his enemies. Remember how God sent his son to the cross, had him suffer tremendously, only to Give him the eternal crown of glory. Christian, he did that for you. He sent his son to suffer punishment for you. And so keep praying, keep remembering what he has done so that you will have hope in what God will do. But thirdly, lastly, know. Pray, remember, know. Know that God is king forever and ever. Verse 14, note these down, things, these things down. Verse 14, the king, he sees your affliction. He notes all mischief that's been done to you. Again, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Verse 17, he hears the desires of the afflicted. He will strengthen your heart to get you through it. Verse 18, he will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is, up, who is but of the earth may strike terror no more, not only in you, beloved, but in anyone else ever again. In other words, to sum that up, God sees, God hears, God will act because God is king. He is ruling forever and ever. I know it may not seem like God is is easy to be found at times, but friends, I'm mindful that Jesus may have thought the same thing when he hung from the cross and said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe Jesus thought the same thing. God has not forgotten you any more than he forgot his son. He knows all of it and he will deal justly in his time, the fullness of time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is all the evidence you need to know that God is king. No man can defeat death. No man has even, a lot of men have tried, but no man has ever been able to defeat death. No earthly king has. The Lord Jesus has done it. He is king. 
All authority, he says, is mine in heaven and on earth. And a day will come when all of our enemies, great and small, they will have to bow the knee to our beloved king and they will have to give an account for every careless word and every unrighteous deed. Nothing will escape his notice. All will be dealt with and we will finally, beloved, be home with him in heaven where we will never have to wonder where he is again because we will see him face to face. God will be all and in all. There will be no more evil. Instead, there will be a world of complete righteousness. But until then, beloved, as we travel through this valley of the shadow of death, wondering when or where we will finally have relief from oppressions big and small, listen, go back to the cross. Go back to the cross, see your Savior hanging there, and be reminded this is how much he loves his people. This is how much he hates evil. This is how much of a just king that he is. This is how he conquers. Look at the cross and be reminded this is how he conquers. He does not conquer as the world does, through pomp and show of force, but through weakness. And it is for this reason, friends, that Wiesel was more right than he knew. God never has been, God has never died. He is of forever. He can't die. When Wiesel walked by the gallows and thought to himself amidst the presence of evil, where is he? There he is hanging in the gallows. The answer is, yes, Ellie. God did hang the gallows. He hated evil so much that he willfully entered into it in order to overcome it. That's how committed he is to overcoming evil and difficulty, pain in the world. And Christ, the Son of God, hung in order to defeat every earthly power, conquering all sin and death of all those who commit themselves to him in faith. It is by his death that Jesus accomplished his reward of a world of righteousness, a world that is absent from any unrighteousness. This is the hope of all Christians. Friends, the world may hate us, but it hated him first. And he has overcome, and so shall we in Christ. Therefore, what can man do to us? (laughs) If God is for us, who can be against us? Pray. Keep praying through the pain. Keep remembering what he has done so that you'll have hope in what he will do. And thirdly, no, he's king. He will make it right. And soon enough, we'll be home. Lord, you are king forever and ever, for every nation, every tribe, tongue, and language. Forgive us, God, for the ways in which we have acted as though we were king and queen. Teach us, Lord, to submit. As Marco has taught us this morning, teach us to do the same. To submit to you through the darkness, through the good days, through the many mundane ways that we give ourselves to King Jesus submitting ourselves to his ways of righteousness. And if enemies may become upon us, may we be reminded of how they got there. And may we trust that you'll get us home and you'll deal with them in your time. But until then, Lord, I pray finally for those evildoers, those unrighteous, those mischievous, those sinful, whoever they are, I pray, God, that they would come to faith. May they repent of their sins and trust in you. That they might know the new life that is found in Jesus. We pray all this 
in his glorious and magnificent and all authoritative name.